Thank you so much, Kim. And let's remember to keep them in prayer. You guys are heading out the 3rd? October 3rd? Okay, 3rd through the 11th. So we'll keep that in prayer and uh, we'll be... And what was that? Pray for your drugs? Medications. There we go. Much better. Thank you. I got a transition now. Let's see here. No, but uh, yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful thing. And I really appreciate that very insightful uh, update on what's happening there. And it really is an awesome thing to, to see how God's kingdom moves and how God's kingdom works, not dependent on governments or any of those things. This is the work of the kingdom of God, and I love it. Um, one of the things that we bemoan a lot in our present uh, state is the polarization of our country. We've heard that a lot. We're just lamenting it all the time. We're so polarized, almost equally divided by politics and culture wars. And honestly, it's talked about, I feel like it's talked about like as if it's a new phenomenon. But I've been taking a really determined look at our history lately. And I realized that this is nothing new at all. This has been going on actually since the time we were founded as a country, this type of, of kind of polarization, these, these different perspectives, honestly. And again, okay, so this is just me giving my fairly useless opinion, but I, I think that what is new is the catastrophizing that we're doing uh, about this polarization catastrophizing is when we look at a set of situations or circumstances that we deem as negative and we just extrapolate that out to the worst possible conclusion. Well, this is the end. This is the ruination of everything. It's, the, you know, it's, it's whatever. And I think it's probably fueled by social media because it gives every one of us a platform to broadcast our opinions about the divide more loudly and more frequently than before. Either way, our current polarized state is a source of concern for a lot of people. And that's what makes the text we're going to look at today so challenging this morning because it seems to picture a very polarized worldview, a very dualistic mindset where there are only two choices to be made. And the stakes seem to be a whole lot higher than just political fallout. But while it may be uncomfortable... While we may feel even a little discomfort as we're thinking about this today, it is part of the gospel's declaration. And it does seem to represent an imperative to those of us who are are challenged by the kingdom of God. It's something we have to grapple with on some level. We're continuing in our study of the gospel of Luke. And if you've got a Bible and you'd like to follow along with us, please go to Luke chapter 11. Last week, we read Jesus' instructions about prayer, uh, which was connected still to that theme of discipleship, the idea of learning from and living for Jesus. And prayer is a part of that, the communication with God. Today, that theme of discipleship continues in a challenge that's posed to us. Jesus actually is going to call us to choose a side, either, either follow him or oppose him. And I realize that can inspire us to go, yikes, that seems you know, very, very narrow. It's a hard thing to hear, but we're going to see 
it is an imperative nonetheless. It's something we're going to have to grapple with if we're going to accept this, this Bible, this document, as legitimate as God's word to us. So if you're there in Luke 11, let's pick up where we left off. We'll kind of examine this as we go, find our way through it. Starting with verse 14. It says, One day Jesus cast out a demon from a man who couldn't speak. When the demon was gone, the man began to speak. The crowds were amazed. But some of them said, No wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons. Others, trying to test Jesus, demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. All right. So as we've seen multiple times in this story so far, different groups of people observe the same event around Jesus and they come to distinctly different conclusions about it. The story begins with a dynamic display of Jesus's authority to heal. The text ascribes this man's inability to speak to demonic oppression. So Jesus heals him, but obviously... This story regards that healing as the result of evicting demonic influences, demonic oppressions there. The reaction to this reveals three different mindsets here. There's positive amazement at what has just taken place. There's critical judgment. And then there is cynical skepticism. Or we could actually break that down and say one was accepting and the other was rejecting. And as uncomfortable as it may make us to say, uh, you know, to, the, to reduce this down to an either or choice. It's what the narrative is describing. And Jesus is actually going to explicitly state this when we get to verse 23. But as an overall header, we need to actually understand something about the nature of this gospel that we've embraced. And that is that it can have a polarizing effect on people. I'm not even going to say can have. It has a polarizing effect on people. The people, it says, were amazed. And while it doesn't get elaborated as a positive response, it's used in contrast to the other responses. So the implication is that amazement is one of a positive sense, maybe leaving room there, willingness to believe that Jesus is the real deal. The other responses are the opposite of that. In Matthew's account of this, the negative responses were from the religious leaders who were hanging out in the crowd, which is typical of Matthew's gospel. So we can kind of assume maybe that's the same in this situation, too. One group cynically claims to be undecided. You know, give me one more miracle, Jesus, and then maybe I'll make up my mind about who you are. This response is bad, and Jesus is going to call it out, but the other is worse. And it calls Jesus an agent of Satan. Literally in the Greek, he's referred to as uh, an agent of Beelzebub, which was kind of shorthand in, in that culture for the devil, for the Satan. Remember, the Satan in the, in the biblical narrative is this mysterious, unseen force, this, uh, this personalized representation of evil in the world, working. The, the, the Satan literally just means the enemy, or you could say the adversary, or you could say the uh, accuser. The whole idea behind the Satan is that it is uh, moving against, opposing the work of God, doing whatever uh, is the opposite of what it is that God wants. And so they call Jesus an agent of this Satan. So this isn't a questioning response from their side. There's no need for further investigation or observation as far as they're concerned. They've got it all figured out. Jesus is a magician. He's doing all this stuff because he's empowered by the devil to do it. 
And this, of course, was a response that was typical of the culture from which it emerged, because many Jewish people thought that magicians who did their work were agents, you know, were, were just basically agencies of demonic forces at work in the world. So the, for the critics of Jesus, this sort of miraculous uh, dynamic was something that they accepted. The idea that it was a miracle was no problem for them. Oh, yeah, it's a miracle. Yeah, that's, that's cool. All they had to do was assign a source to it. What, what's, what's this miracle emerging from? Clearly, there's a power at work here, but they've chosen to reject Jesus as the Messiah, so they have to assign the source of this power to the devil. The world that the gospel emerges from was thoroughly transcendent. And what I mean by that is that they had no doubts about the unseen realm of spirits and things like that. Now, we, as modern Westerners, we are what we would call a disenchanted culture. We don't have room for that in our understanding of things. People in our time and culture are far less likely to assign anything uh, to the devil. And that, you know, line from the usual suspects, the greatest trick the devil ever played on people was to convince people he didn't exist. So, you know, we the fact is that's the way our culture is. We are disenchanted. As modern Westerners, we want everything neatly within an empirical framework that we can measure and determine whether or not it's real based on that. We have no time for transcendence at all. Still, no matter, regardless of the fact that this is a different culture altogether, it's, this is still relevant because it, it points out the polariz- polarization of people's responses to Jesus. It's relevant because it's a rare thing if not a mythological thing, to find someone who is neutral about Jesus. I've had many conversations with people who claim a neutrality about Jesus. Oh, I really don't have an opinion about Jesus one way or the other. But as you get into the conversation more, you realize, well, actually you do. You know, it's like, I, you know, that's fine, but I can't believe in that virgin birth thing. That's just crazy. Or, the, the, you know, the idea that he's the only way to God, that's just offensive to me. Or, come on, really? Raising from the dead? That's just ancient mythological mumbo jumbo. How So clearly... There is an opinion about Jesus, and it's pretty much the idea of rejecting it. I think it's very rare to find a person who is <laughs> who's completely neutral about anything, but especially when it comes to Jesus. People are, are open to or accepting of the gospel, or they reject it because it doesn't provide confirmation bias with an already accepted worldview about how things work. Just like how the religious leaders respond in this text that we're reading here. And as I said, people in our culture, we don't assign his work or anyone's work to the devil per se, but it gets dismissed as ancient, unenlightened, primitive mythology. And as much as we chafe at the binary options that are presented here, our culture especially uh, chafes at that. Jesus seems to prompt Two responses from us, acceptance or rejection. And as uncomfortable as it seems, there is no middle ground stated in this. And this polarization gets specifically defined as Jesus responds to this accusation. Verse 17, he knew their thoughts. So he said, any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. A family splintered by feuding will fall apart. You say that I'm empowered by Satan, but if Satan is divided and fighting against himself, how can his kingdom survive? And if I'm empowered by Satan, 
What about your own exorcists? They cast out demons too, so they'll condemn you for what you've said. But if I'm casting out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. For when a strong man is fully armed and guards his palace, his possessions are safe until someone even stronger attacks and overpowers him, strips him of his weapons, and carries off his belongings. Anyone who isn't with me opposes me. And anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. That's some heavy stuff there in verse 23. Now, here's the thing. It's interesting to me that half this conversation uh, was not happening out loud. In other words, it says that Jesus knew their thoughts, meaning that he's answering things that they've said in their heads, but they haven't said it out loud. And I've often wondered what that looked like when that went down. Because, I mean, it feels kind of weird. Jesus kind of jumps into these non-sequiturs there as people are observing. Like, Jesus heals this guy, and there's a big gasp of amazement. Whoa! And all of a sudden, Jesus looks at someone and says, Oh, yeah? Well, what about this? And, you know, and everybody's like, Who are you talking to, Jesus? <laughs> it's just this stuff that goes through my head. Anyway, Jesus responds to their thought accusations, but he responds quite logically. Why would the enemy be working against the enemy? How would that achieve anything but its own destruction? You don't hire somebody to build a house for you and then hire another crew to come in and tear down the destruction, uh, the construction right afterwards. That would be as ludicrous as it would be futile. And then he points out the hypocrisy that the religious leaders had people in their own ranks whose specialty was using prayer incantations and charms to cast demons out of people. And he's saying, you never say anything to those guys. Why are you picking on me? And he responds to the cynics who were looking for one more sign. And he's saying, if I'm doing this good by God's power. And it's interesting because in the Greek, he's saying, if I'm doing this by the finger of God, which is hearkening back to the Exodus story, the miracles that took place that they had no answer for. And he's saying that to them in this case, if I'm doing this by the finger of God, by God's power, then that right there is your sign that God's kingdom is moving in and doing the work uh, that he intended to do. And his main point is the enemy, the Satan wants to destroy. But Jesus is rebuilding. He's building up. The enemy tries to tear people down. Jesus is restoring them, restoring their humanity to them. That's the work of the kingdom of God on earth. Reconciliation, humanization, restoration, redemption. Those are the things. Look at Haiti. That's what we're talking about there. The things that are happening there within that compound and the clinic. Those things are restoring and building people up. That's the work of God's kingdom on this earth. And so in considering this with the theme of choosing sides, we realize that we're going to be siding with Jesus when we cooperate with God's restorative care for our fellow human being. I mean, Jesus cuts right to the chase. If I'm doing this by God's spirit, it means something. And think about what it means. It means that God's kingdom is breaking in on you and that you have it wrong, he's saying to them. You've got it wrong about what it looks like. And your prejudices here are are misguided and unfounded. The activity of God's kingdom is restorative and it undoes the dehumanizing effect of sin. Those are things to pay attention to. That's where the activity of God's kingdom is at work. What's building up? What's restoring? What's healing? What's binding up wounds? What's drawing people together? What's creating peace? That's the work of God's kingdom. 
Then Jesus uses this intriguing illustration to describe his work, that of binding up a strong man, someone guarding a palace so that he uh, is then plundered. And people have looked at this. There's a lot of different ways in which people look at it. I don't even want to go into all of that. To me, I'm persuaded to believe, and to me it seems obvious, that this would be a picture of the world under the domination of evil and the corruption of sin. And the Satan, the enemy, has had run of God's creation. He's used it as his own palace. He's built up all his stuff, taking all of these things as his own. And so this, what Jesus describes here, and especially in connection with what just took place in the miracle, he's describing a rescue scenario here. Some bad guy has taken over a territory with his army, and he's stolen everything, and he's holding people hostage. And so the hero goes in defeats the bad guy, gets the the stuff and the hostages, and reclaims the stolen property. Jesus, I believe, is picturing himself as one invading the enemy's domain. And that miracle that just took place is representative of that. Invading the enemy's domain and defeating him so that he can rescue and redeem people who've been oppressed. Whether that's demonic oppression or whether that's some other facet of the fallen nature of this world that... Uh, presses in on people to keep them in bondage. Jesus comes to undo the dehumanizing work of the Satan. The guy that Jesus healed, in my thinking, is the epitome uh, of what he's talking about. He was mute. That inability to communicate in, in, in in, in that world and at that time, I mean, what a dehumanizing effect that would have had on him not to be able to communicate. Jesus comes along and restores him to health, to an unencumbered expression of his humanness. And the thing is, those who oppose Jesus, and and think about all of this, those that oppose Jesus do not care about this guy that got healed at all. He never comes up in their thinking one bit. You know, he's a guy who's been suffering so acutely, and yet all they care about are their doctrinal arguments. All they care about is proving themselves right and Jesus being wrong. So Jesus warns them, if you're not gathering with me, if you're not taking up this task of restoring people and providing marginalized people with dignity and hope in God, you're working on the opposite side of that. You're working against me, Jesus says. And this again, it's a reminder to us as the church, as those who are representations of the kingdom of God on this earth, as as representatives of God's activity on this earth, in all of our doctrines and our politics and our social causes, we are siding with someone. We're siding with the work of Christ when we're restoring and humanizing and reconciling people with God. Our calling is to seek the betterment of our fellow human being. And those words there in verse 23 are intense to me. It's the counterpart, you know, of what he said back in chapter 9. Do you remember back in chapter chapter 9 when a guy was casting out demons in Jesus' name and, and the disciples said to him, hey, stop that. Those are our trade secrets. You can't use those. And Jesus said to them, no, whoever is not against us is with us. Remember? Well, this is the counterpart to this. This is, he's saying here, whoever isn't with me then is actually opposing me. 
Whoever isn't working with me, actively working at this project, this kingdom of God project to bring healing and restoration and reconciliation. You're not doing that. Well, you're doing something, he says. You're working against me. And there is no neutral ground in this statement. There's no tertium quid. There's no third way that he presents to us. And we have to think about that. And what was the work that he expects us to be working on? This, what he was talking about, what he just did, restoring, building up. Those opposing Jesus were trying to win arguments to make themselves look good. The oppressed were of no concern to them. And so verse 23, I'm telling you, that's a heavy statement. And it's something we need to take home and contemplate. It's important to do so. It's something that we can present to God in prayer. God, illuminate my life to me. Help me to get in sync with Jesus' activity. Help me to be in sync with all of those things that you described in the Beatitude. Beatitudes that, that describe the heart of a kingdom representative of blessing the poor, of being the peacemaker. Well, let's keep going here. Uh, verses 24 to 28. When an evil, Jesus is still talking, says when an evil spirit leaves a person, it goes into the desert searching for rest. But when it finds none, it says, I'll return to the person I came from. So it returns and finds its former home all swept and in order. Then the spirit finds seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they all enter the person and live there so that that person is worse off than before. As he was speaking, a woman in the crowd called out, God bless your mother, the womb from which you came and the breast that nursed you. Jesus replied, but even more blessed are all who hear the word of God and put it into practice. Okay, so if we thought the strongman illustration was weird, this story just kind of pushes us right over the edge. Like, you thought that was something. Wait till you hear this. Uh, it's really unusual. I mean, there's, there's things that he says here that, you know, you feel like he's taking for granted. We understand what in the world he's talking about. Like, go in the desert. What? Uh, you know, so I guess stay away from deserts or I there's a lot of disagreement as to how to interpret uh, what he's saying here. Since it's said in the context of driving out an evil spirit, uh, many assume that this is basically aftercare instructions for somebody who's just been released from demonic influences here, follow this. And, you know, these are procedures. And so, in, so some people view this as a warning to be careful to fill up your house with God, your life house with God, or you'll get repossessed and be seven times worse off uh, than before. Of course, that just results in a lot of pressure on people. I mean, you know, one might think, well, you know what? I was better off just with one demon. I guess don't cast that out because uh, I don't know if I can do this right. And I don't want to be even worse off than I was before. So, I mean, that's where the thing is a little hard for me to accept that as being the, the, the interpretation. You'll have to think that over and pray about it. There are other points of view that I am inclined to, to agree with. They see this more as a parable, especially since he assigns dialogue to the spirit. 
it may be that Jesus is using the deliverance of this guy as an illustration of a larger point, something that was happening in Israel, something that's easily, something that can happen to us as people who are trying to follow God. Remember, all of Jesus's miracles are meant to communicate something. Jesus wasn't just trying to, you know, get as many people healed as he could. I mean, certainly he wants to heal people, but these healings were, were demonstrative of what it is that God's kingdom is doing, what his kingdom looks like in, in the world. He was showing us what God's up to with the human race. And so I think this is a parable that applies to our life's pursuits. In other words, he's saying it's not enough to be rid of bad influences and straighten up our lives, get everything swept in an order and looking good, because that's a recipe for self-righteousness, the, the kind that the religious leaders of Jesus's day had that were presently opposing him in this story. I believe that Jesus is calling us to fill our lives with him, with the activity that he's called us to, with the care and the love and the forgiveness that he's given us that we're meant to share with others in this world. And I think that gets revealed then in verses 27 and 28, the woman giving this cry of admiration for Jesus, you know, oh, you know, God bless your mom. She must be so proud of you. She must be so blessed. And Jesus turns it into a warning. The really blessed are those who hear God's word and then put it into practice. Don't just admire Jesus, he's saying, but actually take this up as their cause as well. And I think that's the point. Siding with Jesus isn't about getting a life in order so that it looks good to others and carries a certain level of respectability. It's not about admiring Jesus. It's about following his way of living this way that he calls us to. So I believe this is telling us that to side with Jesus, we're going to do it not through applause, but with obedience. It's too easy to say, you know, I'm on team Jesus. Jesus is my homie or whatever anybody's saying anymore. To view him as this figurehead that we admire instead of as a leader we're meant to follow. Plenty of celebrities and politicians invoke the name of Jesus in order to gain the approval of some for any given reason. The Christian philosopher Soren Kierkegaard wrote, It is well known that Christ consistently used the expression follower. He never asks for admirers or adherents. No, he calls disciples. It's not adherents of a teaching, but followers of a life Christ is looking for. This this word we examine week by week as we come here, we gather here Sunday after Sunday to get into the word. My hope is that we're not just here to, to learn more, to gain more facts, to, to gather more information or worse, to be entertained, though I would find that hard to believe that's possible. Uh, Eugene Peterson said that we should be here presenting ourselves before God's word in order to be shaped by it, to be shaped by God's word into a life that reflects who Jesus is into this world. That's the life that Jesus is calling us to, a life shaped by grace and love and goodness that represents the God whose image we're made in, that represents God's image into this world. And now, you know, again, I got to qualify because the temptation or the the concern that I would have would be that somebody hears all this thinks, oh, you know, I don't do this right. Oh, no, maybe I'm an opposing Jesus. Nobody does this well, right? We understand that. Nobody does this well. 
but it has to do with the trajectory of our lives. Following Jesus is going to be manifested somewhere in our value set, in in our priorities. It's going to affect how it is that we interact with our fellow human being. Empathy and grace and love is going to be present there somewhere if we've sided with him on this mission. It doesn't mean that we're going to do it perfectly, but it means that that's the intent. That's the goal, the priority and the value that we set before us as his people, right? Does that make sense? I know, listen, I know this is a heavy message in in our culture where plurality is kind of the new orthodoxy. It sounds very exclusive and narrow to present this binary demand for or against. But just quickly, let me give you one more quote from N.T. Wright. This, this, this call, this, this choice is at its heart a summons to all people to discover the true fulfillment of every human aspiration and dream by following Jesus. Giving up the idols that promise the earth and embracing the God who promises new heavens and new earth as the true fulfillment of the present creation. As we consider this word that we were presented with today, as we consider Jesus' words, not just to the crowds that were there, that's what he said, but as we consider what he's saying right now to us, let's take this to heart. Let's allow God to examine our hearts and let's determine Let's make that determination even this morning. Let's side with Jesus in this. There are so many voices, so many voices, so many loud voices competing for our loyalty and our affection and our commitment. Let's side with Jesus. Let's find out where he's at. Let's find those things that are humanizing, that are building up, that are peacemaking, that are healing. And let's side with that. Let's follow Jesus all the way home. Right on? All right, very cool. Why don't you stand with me, please? Father, we just pray, as we were even talking about today, we pray that as we've presented ourselves before your word, that you by your spirit will affect those changes in us. Awaken our hearts. Awaken our minds. Father, I pray that you, by your spirit, will disarm the spirit of this age at work in our hearts, oftentimes at work in our lives, at work in the church spirit of the age break every chain Lord God and awaken us awaken us to the nobility of this calling calling that you've given us as your church help us God help us to let go of these petty political pursuits help us to embrace this high calling of representing the one true king into this world. The king of kings, the lord of lords, the prince of peace, the author of eternal life. Help us to represent Christ 
above all else. I pray that for us as your people, as your church. Make that so. In Jesus' name, amen.